Well, if you would, please take your scriptures and turn there to Matthew chapter 21. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read a portion of John chapter 11. Because in sequence, these go together. Uh, Today is what is called Palm Sunday. Um, Based upon Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, it's his final entry uh, of his earthly ministry. He knows that when he enters, he's entering to be crucified. He knows that will happen in a specific way, and it will be done in less than a week from his entry. It's also called today Jesus' triumphal or triumphant entry. And the question is, what is triumphant about it? I mean, even as, even as the text was read, uh, you've got really an underwhelming picture, right? You've got Jesus riding on a small colt of a donkey. Uh, you've got a makeshift saddle. You know, they throw their clothes on top of uh, this, well, the, the donkey and its mother, it says. And he rides in and they shout. And this has happened before in history. They shouted uh, when one of the Hasmonean brothers, Simon, came in. Similar. He rode on a donkey. They shouted. This isn't the first time in history this has happened. And it shows that they were expecting a type of political prophet or political messiah. It's already happened. It came after they, uh, they defeated, after Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, defeated the Seleucids. There was a similar singing and waving of palm branches. So we have to understand this is not particularly Christian when we read this. This is the way that the nation of Israel would celebrate victory. So that's why it's called a triumphant, a victorious entry. Let me read to you what happened just previously to this entry. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Of course, if you're familiar with this, um, Jesus divinely delays his going to Bethany and Lazarus does die. And during his visit, um, he is interacting with Mary and Martha and, and teaching a very important lesson of which Lazarus is going to be the vivid illustration. The teaching is that he is, Jesus is, the resurrection and the life. Of course, if you know the story, what happens? I mean, he calls Lazarus forth out of the grave and out he comes after being dead for four days. That's why there's such an interest in this man. That's and, 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 and Jesus looks and he says, you know, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And towards the end, he says this, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Right after he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So Lazarus, dead for four days, is now walking around and the people see this. And so they're following this one who can raise the dead into Jerusalem. So if we just connect the dots, that's how we get to where we're at. And they've already seen most of the miracles. They've seen, you know, they've seen him feed 5,000. They've seen him feed 4,000. His popularity is growing 
Well, now he goes to enter Jerusalem and his followers think he's there to sort of push out Rome and set up an earthly kingdom. Matthew chapter 21, which was read for us. Here's what we don't see. Jesus does not ride in on a powerful war horse. He does not claim a series of campaigns or victories. There is no procession of captive enemies or defeated kings following him into the city. There is no visible kingdom he's taken. There's no land. There's no new land that he can boast of. He wears no armor or crown. And within less than a week, Roman guards, Gentiles, will lead Jesus out of the city to execute him as a defeated captive. So why do we call this triumphant? I mean, what is so victorious about Jesus entering in only to be subjected by, Gentile, by a Gentile nation to a shameful death? So let's take a look at the narrative section. I'm going to reread each little portion. It's a shorter passage, but look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 3. And I want you to notice this, because this is intended to instruct us and to give us hope. First of all, Jesus is the all-knowing Lord. Look at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Okay, so he's going to put them on a mission. This is one of the first times he sends the disciples without him accompanying them. And he says to them, verse 2, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. In this narrative section, it's very interesting that in this little instructive part, it stands out that Jesus owns everything. Even the donkey that you thought was yours. He owns it. Why? He's the creator king. He's, he has the right to absolutely everything on this earth that he has created. Matthew mentions two animals. Mark and Luke do not. Matthew mentions that they put clothes as a makeshift saddle on both of the donkeys and he rode them. Now, don't have a silly picture like he's straddling two donkeys. Um, by the way, each gospel narrative supplements the other. In Mark, it was simply the colt of a donkey. In Luke, it's the colt of a donkey. Matthew mentions two animals. That's not a contradiction. It is simply that Jesus knows that when he enters into Jerusalem, the crowds will go into a frenzy. And this young colt, who has never been ridden before, will be calmed by the presence of what? His mom, right? They probably don't say that in donkey terms. But, you know, he's going to be comforted by... His mother there. And here's the other lesson that is probably how this happened, that as he's approaching that young donkey, it would have been too much for him to go up some of the elevations that are all around Jerusalem, even after you enter into the city. And that is probably when he would have switched over to the more mature donkey. Okay, so it's not a contradiction. It's simply a supplement of materials. But he says, untie them and bring them to me. Jesus knows as soon as they enter this city in front of them, they're going to find the donkey. It's going to be tied. And there's going to be the colt of a donkey that has never been ridden on before. And if he also knows this, if anyone asks, what are you doing? 
All you have to say is the Lord needs them and they'll release them. Jesus rightly owns everything. Psalm 24 verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Why? For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1. For by Him, he's talking about Christ, not the Father in this particular passage, but Christ. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Everything is the Lord's. So when you go into this city in front of you, you're going to find a donkey tied. Bring her and her colt to me. Notice what else is happening here. Jesus possesses foreknowledge. He's not only the rightful owner of everything because he's the creator, but he possesses foreknowledge. You will find a donkey. The Lord needs them. But something else is happening. While Jesus is making preparations for his messianic entrance into Jerusalem, he's also preparing who? He's preparing his disciples. He's preparing his disciples to trust him in his absence. So they have to go and completely believe that what Jesus just said is going to happen. And I think that would be, you know, I put myself in their sandals. That would have been fine. I could almost anticipate in this town, you're going to find a donkey, right? It's not an uncommon animal. And if you find the one with a little colt, that's going to stand out and they're tied. But the point of faith for me, just like, this past week, there are, there are sort of these pressure points where you have belief and unbelief mixed. Would have been when somebody asks me what I'm doing. Hey, what are you doing? Because they know in that kind of a culture, in that kind of community, it's not those two men's donkey. And all they have to do is what? They don't have to make up a story. They don't have to sort of make an excuse. They simply have to obey the Lord. The Lord has needed them. That's going to work. Can you just imagine how your mind is racing? That's actually going to be. And they say, oh, okay. That's what he's doing. And now the disciples just learned a very important lesson that when he is removed from the earth and during this, and even for us, during this 2000 year wait, we can trust him in his seeming absence. He's preparing his disciples to trust him. Why, why is all this happening? Because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And now His Son is going to present Himself in Jerusalem. Romans 5.8 says, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 4. So, Jesus is the rightful King, the rightful owner of everything, but notice that he presents himself as a specific kind of king. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill. Okay, so this means this is going to be the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy or something that was already foretold. We've already seen that he has foreknowledge. You're going to find a donkey. If anyone asks, just tell them the Lord has need of it. But now he's entering this particular way to present himself as a specific kind of king. He's not the kind of king that people want. 
They want a political savior, somebody who can multiply food, and somebody who can be victorious over Rome. Jesus does not ride this little donkey into Jerusalem wrapped in the flag of Israel. He doesn't ride in with an army. He rides in and presents himself as a specific kind of king. And it's the kind of king we most need. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus' entrance was a messianic entrance. What do we mean by that term, messianic? From Genesis 3, there was a promise that a rescuer would come. Right in the very same chapter that humanity chooses to sin and plunges all of humanity into sin, there's a promise that God would send a rescuer deliverer, an anointed one. And that idea of a Messiah is woven all throughout the Old Testament, that an anointed one, a promised one, a rescuer deliverer is going to come and he's going to fulfill these specific prophecies. In this case, he fulfills Zechariah 9, 9. You can see the arrival. Behold, your king is coming to you. The prophetic identification mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So according to Zechariah 9.9, if he rides in on a war horse, that's not the Messiah. He's going to present himself in humility. And the response of the people, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Messiah comes in humility, gentleness, and peace. It was a sacred entrance. It was a messianic entrance, but it's also a sacred entrance. Matthew omits a piece of information that Mark and Luke both include. Let me read Mark's detail. In Mark 11, verse 2, he states this. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Why did, why did Mark and Luke make that point? Because it is significant in light of what is happening and in light of who Jesus is that an animal devoted to a sacred or a holy purpose, simply set apart purpose, must be one that had not been put to ordinary use. Let me read two verses out of the Old Testament. Numbers 19.2 says, This is the statue, the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come. So this specific heifer for this sacrificial purpose is supposed to be set aside and, it, and, has, and has not to have been used in an ordinary way. Deuteronomy 21 verse 3. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled in a yoke. We understand this, don't we? We understand when things are, are set apart for a sacred purpose. We understand when things meet a holy purpose. Uh, earlier this year, uh, I was informed, no names were given, uh, that after we observed the Lord's Supper... Uh, that we had a, a group of marauding young men that would run into the kitchen and take all the cups of juice and finish the juice. And then they would eat all the, the bread. Is that a problem? Isn't it still bread? 
Isn't it still juice? Right? Yes, but there's a difference, isn't there? Because we had set it apart and used it for a sacred purpose. The bread was still stalish bread. It didn't turn into the body of Jesus. That's not why we're, we're guarding it. And the juice was just still that syrupy, sweet, not even enough to satisfy. It's just enough to remind us of a very specific sacred thing. And so to, to rush up and drink it like it's a leftover can of Coke is problematic. Not that children behave like children. We want children to behave like children. But in that particular usage, we want to say this is different, right? We're going we're to dispose of this quietly and secretly because it was set apart. The little donkey is still a little donkey. He doesn't go on to become this special donkey, you know, after Jesus rides him. Or the whole, you know, the, the, the myth that, you know, it was after Jesus rode on the donkey that that cross appeared on its back. You know, you just don't see that in Scripture. Uh, neat that the donkey has what looks like, a, you know, there's a lot of other animals that have like cross shapes on them too that were never incorporated for this purpose. But this sacred animal, this colt, the foal of a donkey that has never been sat on is indicating that Jesus is presenting himself as a specific kind of king. He is the Messiah, and He is here to do a sacred work. And now we're going to start to get the answer to the question of what victory does this present? Jesus' entry was both messianic and sacred. The world should take note and not miss the significance of this event. But now let's move in from the entry to the disciples and the crowds. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Here's a truth that if, if we just read through it, sometimes doesn't stand out. This is the lesson I need and I know that we need. The obedience to Jesus' commands is recorded in terms identical with his instruction. Verse 2, go into the village in front of you. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Verse 2, untie them and bring them to me. Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt. Verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Mark 11, verse 5 and 6 says, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. Jesus gives a command and his disciples on this occasion obey the command. There have been other situations where the disciples did not obey and there would still be other opportunities where they can obey and they don't. I'm not sure how much we realize how mundane that is. Go get a donkey and a colt. They went and got the donkey and the colt. Go bring them to me. They brought them to me. If anyone says any of you, they, that's what they did. Very, do you know that a lot of our life looks like that? It's in the mundane details of obedience to Jesus 
There was nothing magical or professional about what they did. It was just obedience. Yet this was the work of the King of Kings at that moment. And so much of discipleship looks like that. And even as we mature, and even as some of us move into the later stages of our life, discipleship looks exactly like this. And Jesus will say, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. You know, this is what discipleship to the nations looks like as well. At the very end of Matthew's account, Jesus will say, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He says, go. Go get the donkey, bring them to me. Go to the nations, tell them about me. Go to the nations, make disciples. So whether he says, go into the village in front of you and do this, or if he says, go to Libya and do this, discipleship is about obedience to the Lord. Remember what Jesus said, because sometimes I can, I cannot believe this. I was reading this morning in the end of Mark, where after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the eleven disciples and he had to rebuke them. This is after the resurrection. And he had to rebuke them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief. And sometimes even on mature believers, the waves of unbelief can wash over our soul. I'm not saying that it's possible to lose your salvation. And I'm not saying you have not been born again. But there are seasons of darkness that wash over a person's soul of hardness of heart and unbelief. And you know what the Lord is gracious to do? The Lord is gracious to step back into our life and gently rebuke us of those things. But listen to what, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 29 to 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Zechariah 9.9 says that the King of Kings, the Messiah, will enter Jerusalem in humility. That was the visible, that was the visible demonstration of sitting on the small colt. Do you know it's sin that is difficult, not obedience? It's sin that brings sorrow and a heavy burden, not obedience. Jesus' yoke is easy and His burden is light. Let me ask you, how is your soul this morning? Is it restful? So you have no idea what's going on in my life. I don't. I know some of the... I know some of the circumstances of some of your lives, but I don't know all the circumstances of any of your lives. What's going, what are the storms brewing in my mind, in my heart? You don't know. But if, but if I did a soul checkup this morning, where is my soul? And some mornings, to be very honest, it's not restful. It's chaotic. It's busy. It's hardened. It doesn't believe. And Jesus says, Here's the answer. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. And listen to this. Let this just sort of pop and you will find rest for your souls. Obedience in the simple things brings rest. Look at the response of the crowds. Look at verse 7 to 9. The disciples spread their garments on the colt to serve the provided 
saddle. The crowds made a royal carpet, a royal entry carpet out of branches and their garments. No doubt the raising of Lazarus, heightening the crowd's messianic expectations. Like if he can raise the dead, Rome's in trouble. When the real message is, if he can raise the dead, all his claims are true. He's the Son of God. He can forgive sin. He knows everything. Notice what the crowd is shouting. First, Hosanna. Uh, it means save us. It comes out of Psalm 118. Uh, it also means praise Yahweh. So that's kind of what they're singing. Save us. But theirs was a temporary declaration. Save us now. Save us from the, from the foreign oppressor. Save us from this terrible situation. And Jesus did come to save. But His salvation is so much bigger and grander. And the kingdom He offers is so much better. Second, they cry out and they give Him this title, uh, Hosanna to the Son of David. And by that title, the crowd is reflecting messianic hopes. Is this the one? Is this the deliverer? Is this the rescuer? Of course, their proof would have been He is if what? If He was the kind of king they wanted. They didn't, and the disciples didn't either. They did not want a king that faced a shameful death on a Roman cross. And the reason they didn't want that kind of a king is because they do not fully understand their need or the kind of kingdom He came to bring. Jesus' entry begs a question. Look at verse 10. And when He entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred up saying, what's the, what's the question? Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus the Nazar from Nazareth of Galilee. By the way, it is a great question. But the crowds show their limited understanding, their partial knowledge. He's a prophet from Nazareth. It's almost like they forgot any connection between the fact that this is the Messiah King that was born where? Only about five miles away in Bethlehem. And they're saying, oh, he's a prophet from Nazareth. And they heard what he just did in Bethany. This is the prophet Jesus. Let me ask you, who is this? Who is Jesus? Because if we're not careful, we remove his deity. We remove the fact that there is no way to the Father except through him if he just becomes another great kind of teacher. If we put him up here on the shelf of Moses and Elijah, Muhammad, all the Indian writers, respected philosophers, Peter made this mistake when he's up on the Mount of Transfiguration and there appeared Elijah and one of the prophets and Moses. And Peter said, it's good that we're here. Let's stay here. Let's build a little tent. Let's, let's tent here and stay for a while. And then a cloud comes and removes who? The representative of the law and the representative of the prophets. And the Father says, this is my Son. Listen to Him. Peter was still, even as a disciple believer, Peter was still learning how to estimate Jesus for who He really was. Who is this? You know why this question matters? Because Jesus said that He was the Son of God. That's why that question matters. 
when he, he said this to the Jewish leaders, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. They knew exactly what that meant because they wanted to take up stones and kill him right there on the spot. The question, who is Jesus, matters because he said he could forgive sin. It matters because he claimed he was the only way to the Father. He claimed to have power over death. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. And he said this, he said, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So who is this? Jesus. The crowd of Passover pilgrims viewed salvation as primarily national or political. They hoped Jesus enters to purge the city from foreign domination. And even the disciples had sort of this illusion that he came to set up an earthly kingdom right there and they would serve with the Lord on matching thrones. Do you remember the question they asked? Who's going to sit on your right and left hand? But Jesus came to introduce a better kingdom. Notice what he does at the end of the first day. The first day of this Passion Week is the triumphal entry. Notice what he does as he goes into the city and where he goes. Look at verse uh, 12, and let me read to you a prophecy out of Malachi chapter 3. Malachi says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Go back to the very first lesson. He owns everything. He's the Lord of all. He will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Look at Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. I mean, I don't know what that would look like today. He pushes our speakers out of the way and our instruments and all the books that we rave about. And we have all our you know, designer labeled religion. And he just, what would it look like when he visits his church? But the temple is important. The temple was unique. After entering the temple, Jesus goes home to Bethany that night. This is what he does on the first three successive days. He enters Jerusalem, he ministers, he leaves, and he spends the night in Bethany. He comes back the next day. But Jesus did not visit his temple out of pious reverence. He's the Lord of the temple. He visits it to survey it. He's not there to offer prayers or sacrifice. He's there to survey the temple. It's almost a quiet survey. I like what John chapter 2 says. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. He surveys the temple. He goes in and has become a market. It has become a place where thieves and robbers are being harbored. 
And it does not reflect the real temple, Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus came to offer a once-for-all sacrifice through His death and to allow His temple to be destroyed only to raise it up when? Three days later. This is all going to happen in this week that we commemorate 2,000 years ago. Triumphant, yes, but it's a different kind of victory. Jesus' entrance points to not what the crowd and the disciples longed for, but one that will be more powerful than any Davidic monarchy, one that will be more powerful than Rome, one that will be more far-reaching than the land of Israel itself. It will be a worldwide kingdom. That's the point of the entry. You know, in Matthew, 8 of 28 chapters focus on this one week of Jesus' life. In Mark, 6 of 16 chapters focus on this one week from Sunday to Sunday. It focuses on that one week of his life. In Luke, 6 of 24 chapters focus on that one week of Jesus' life. And in John, 9 of 21 chapters focus on one week of Jesus' life. This is the week. And it is marked by his entry into Jerusalem. 29 of 89 chapters, one third of all gospel material focus on this week. Why? Because of the victory that the week will bring. You know, many churches celebrate Palm Sunday. We've done this in the past. And it's cute where the, the children come down. They have the palm farms. And we've got to protect people's heads that are sitting on the inner aisles. And then we, last year, I think we collected them up front here because to try to have them sing while they're waving the palm branches And sometimes it's the fickleness of the crowd waving the palm branches that's highlighted. Do you know the disciples had a fickleness too? And it it was a wrong understanding of Jesus' entry. It is a victory, but not why they were waving the palm branches. But it is a celebratory picture. And some churches move from celebrating Palm Sunday, and then they'll meet again in one week, and they'll celebrate Easter, the resurrection. And we could wrongly get the idea that Christianity sort of glibly and joyfully moves from one celebration, palms, to another celebration, he's risen. And we forget what the gospel writers focus on. And what they focus on is his suffering. They focus on the shame of the death. And they focus on the fact that he did die. The resurrection does not remove the need for Christ's broken body, shed blood, and death, but it vindicates it. So if, you, if, if it's simply waving a palms and woo, empty grave, okay, why? And that comes back to the question, who is this? This is the Lamb of God who will shed His blood for the sins of the world. This is the Messiah King who though He created the world and owns everything in it and has the rightful rule... He will become a man and he will subject himself to a shameful death. Why? Well, the meaning is found in his name. Jesus. Yahweh saves. And there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So as we move from the celebration of an entry to the celebration of an empty grave, let's remember that Jesus Christ came for the purpose of dying for sin for the purpose of offering himself for the payment of sin. So now salvation is actually tied to belief in the resurrection. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10:9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's who he is. 
He is Lord. He's sovereign king. He's God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, really, does it matter what we do right now? Does it matter that we woke up early and we gathered? And the answer is it does. Why? Because Jesus Christ is risen. And every Sunday, not just next Sunday, every Sunday, that is our proclamation. My only hope is not how I lived in the last 48 hours. My only hope is in Jesus Christ and God's gift of grace through His Son. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's salvation. That's Hosanna, God save us. And then this triumph, this triumph is in, let me read one last verse. This is the triumph or the victory that Jesus claims so that at the end of this huge chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there stands this verse, verse 57 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. I can't, I can't win the victory. I can hardly make it through this next week. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus? He purposely presented himself as a specific kind of king. And he came to present himself for a specific kind of work. And that work was the death of his own body as a sin sacrifice. He who knew no sin made himself a sin offering so that we who are sinners might become the very righteousness of God. Let's pray.